Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We had such a spectacular winter fundraiser. Thank you so much for all you do, the way you care about us, the way you love Faith Radio, the way you support us. It's kind of that loyal love, that 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 Hesed love, that faithfulness that you have, not only for the Lord, but for your willingness to support us here at Faith Radio. So thank you for that. We had so much fun hearing stories and getting testimonies and generous uh, gifts that came in of all sizes was uh, really a blessing for us. And I want to just say thank you. I know Rosie wants to say thank you. So go ahead, Rosie, say thank you. Oh, I just want to love on everybody. I we just, pretty, I, I feel overwhelmed. Great. It's yeah. its kind of hard to, to start into the show because I just kind of want to bask in the gratitude a little That's bit. why I have David Wheaton on because that's going to make my job a little bit easier today because we're going to go back to teaching on the awesome epic book of Exodus. We, uh, are going to be in chapters 15 and 16. We've been in this study for a while, and I'm so grateful for him and his willingness to be uh, teaching the book of Exodus, because we went through Genesis, and I said, what's next? And he said, Exodus. I know, and is there anyone better than David to pull apart Exodus? It's so rich and deep, and the way he thinks, it's easy for me to learn with the way he thinks and teaches. Amen, Rosie. So you can go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David. He's a regular guest on the show. He also is a radio host himself. He has a weekend show. You can learn all about that at thechristianworldview.org. David, welcome back. Bill, my pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, thank you. So let's dig back into Exodus, and I think it's. Uh, I think we'll do a little bit of recap. So let's maybe recap uh, Exodus thirteen and fourteen. There were some pretty significant things that happened, like uh, I don't know the tenth plague and the parting of the Red Sea. Yeah, last time we we discussed this tenth plague or the super plague that led to Pharaoh and the Egyptians just telling the the Jewish people to to get out of the country. And this 10th plague is going to be the death of the firstborn of Egypt. I mean, just just incomprehensible. Think about it. If something like that happened here, you know, what kind of impact that would have on society? It just every house was struck uh, with death. And it was just a, a huge, huge, uh, terrible situation in Egypt. And at the same time that there's death going on in Egypt, um, God is telling Israel how they can be saved from God's judgment, because if they didn't do what God had commanded them to do by faith, they would lose their firstborn too. And so it's really impossible, I think, to overstate the significance of this particular plague and what it led to the the festival of Passover, which is still celebrated today by Jewish people, but even more so by Christians who, as the Passover lamb back then was a, a lamb when the blood was shed and put on the, the doorpost of the house, and you had to do that by faith so God would pass over in judgment and how that relates directly to the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world and his blood being shed and being on that wood cross. And for those who look to that blood and trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross for their sins by faith, that they'll be saved from their sins. So there's immense significance of what we discussed last time. And it would have taught them 
several things. The idea of substitution, like the lamb is dying, so we don't have to die. That That is the heart of the gospel is penal substitutionary atonement. It's a big theological word, but it's an important one to understand. Penal means penalty. There's a penalty for sin. Substitutionary, everyone knows what that means. It means someone goes in your place, and atonement means to make things right with God that were formerly not right with God, and that's what Christ did, and that's what this lamb did, was a picture of this lamb was dying for him. So they learned this idea of substitution, which is so key. And then they also learned, Bill, that that they're saved by faith. I mean, putting blood or, or on a door to be saved from God's judgment, there, there's no scientific reason. There's nothing kind of special about doing that, that that's going to save you in life. I mean, how does that work? But what it was is it was a picture of how we're saved by faith. They, they believed God at his word. God had said this, kill a lamb, a Passover lamb, one-year-old lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and then the angel of death will pass over your home and your firstborn won't die. So this was a complete act of faith. It didn't make it doesn't make any sense uh, from a, just a logical standpoint, but they were to act in faith. And so this is the same way we're saved today, Bill, where, we're, where we believe God at his word. That's the same way we're saved today, not through trying to climb some ladder or keep the Ten Commandments so we can earn or so we can deserve salvation, but simply believing God at his word. And he, what he said at his word is what he said about his son, Jesus Christ. He is God's son. He's the perfect, sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And his his person, his work, what he did on the cross, his blood that he shed, is what effectively uh, atones for our sin. It satisfies God's wrath and justice. So we're saved the same way today as they were back in the Old Testament. The words you just spoke always bring me joy, David. Yeah, well, the gospel never gets old, and it it means good news for a reason, because it's the best news to our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is we're sinners. How can we be made right with a perfectly holy and righteous God and spend eternity in a perfect place with Him in heaven? We can't on our own. We can't do enough good to offset the sin we've already done, so how do we do it? We have to have this, what's called an alien righteousness account to do us. We need to have our sins paid for, and Jesus does that. Otherwise, we have to pay the penalty ourselves. And then God, beyond that, gives us, accounts to the believer, the very righteousness of of Christ, because he has paid for all our past, present, and future sins. I mean, the gospel is so, it's so simple. You know, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. It's so simple to understand that he's paying the penalty for us that we deserve to pay. Any child can understand that, but then as we were just discussing, it's so profound, it's just like so deep and so many layers to it that you can just dig deeper and deeper into it. Mm-hmm. David, any additional thoughts on the parting of the Red Sea? Well, the parting of the Red Sea, you know, people will try to figure out you know, how that was done, what kind of wind was that, or try to explain that by natural elements. Um, but it can't be. It was just a supernatural act from God that uh, Israel was now is fleeing Pharaoh, you know, after all these plagues, especially the last one, he and his the Egyptians changed their mind. What are we doing? How are, why are we letting them go? We need to go and bring them back. You know, meanwhile, Israel is waiting at the at the Red Sea. They're kind of camped there and they see the Egyptians coming. And it's interesting how it says they left boldly after this 10th plague. They the the Jews did. They left very boldly. They're very encouraged by what God has done. But then when they look backwards and they see the Egyptians coming, they're incredibly afraid. And so they lose their trust. You know, God had just saved them now just days or however long it was later. He's going to save them again. But they they feared 
right away. And God's going to save them miraculously by causing the sea to be divided overnight and Israel to walk through on dry ground and the Egyptians army to rush in and pursue. Hey, it's dry. Let's go in. And then God <laughs> brings their chariots into confusion. The chariots don't operate correctly. This is all supernatural. Again, can't be explained with natural occurrences. And God tells Moses to stretch out his hand over the sea after all the Jews, the nation of Israel has gone through. And of course the sea crashes in on the Egyptians and it says the entire army was destroyed. And Exodus 14 closes by saying, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And this really needs to be our response. When we see God's creation outside, when we see a beautiful sunset, when we see just the way he created us, when we read about the acts of God and the attributes of God in Scripture, when we know about God's Son, here we're coming up to Christmas right now, we're gonna, we know about this Son of God who came in the world, born of a virgin, we need to fear Him or revere Him, be in awe of Him, and then ultimately that should leave, lead to believing in Him as, as Savior and Lord. Mm-hmm. David, well said. You know, when I see a beautiful sunset or I see your backhand, I think of God's goodness <laughs> and His amazing majesty. All right, let's uh, move on to uh, Exodus 15. Uh, let's talk about that. What is the song about that Israel sings in Exodus 15 after being delivered by God? Yeah, so we, we talked about Exodus 14 there as review, but Exodus 15, you turn the page and there's an, basically an entire chapter that's devoted to, well, it says that Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And, and like, here's a little excerpt. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. So they're looking back at just what happened and just praising God. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He saved us. This is my God. I will praise him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. And this goes on for 19 verses in Exodus chapter 15, and they, they are rightfully praising God, awesome in praises, working wonders. It goes on and on and on. Now, we need to remember the amount of praise they're lavishing on God here, because what's going to happen time and time again right after this is going to be the opposite of what we find in Exodus chapter 15, because they're going to be known as a complaining people, a grumbling people, a doubting people, not trusting in God, worshiping false gods. And the lesson here is we should absolutely remember, like the nation of Israel did, to praise God after the great things he does in our lives. We need to praise him for that. But we also need to be cautious after great moments of high points in our life. That's when Satan often comes in and tries to undercut us and mm-hmm. bring something in that's going to lead us the wrong way. And we need to remember that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and that we need to be diligent to to be sanctified, to as it says in Romans 12, 1, to present our bodies a living and holy ex, uh, sacrifice acceptable to God. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need our minds renewed on a regular basis. Otherwise, we quickly go astray, which is what happened right after this, this great song of praise in Exodus 15. You turn the page again in Exodus 16, and the people start their complaining right away over something they should be trusting God over. Amazing. David Wheaton is my guest. You can go to 
thechristianworldview.org. Learn more about David. We're continuing our study on the epic exodus and how it displays the awesome God. We'll be right back. We're continuing his great study of the book of Exodus. We are in chapters 15, moving into 16. They had just sung this song, um, being praising God, but God gave him, handed him a test after they sung. Yeah, right after they, they had just praised God so much, you, you, you turn uh, the, the, the page here. And you get into Exodus 16, and literally, I just want to read this one passage because it just makes such the point how quickly this took place. It says, then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now, I know everyone needs water very regularly, but they had just gone three days after the Red Sea. And it says, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters, therefore they were bitter. It was like brackish backwater. And so the people grumbled, and this is gonna, that's going to be the word you're going to hear over and over again. The people grumbled at Moses, really grumbling at God for bringing him into this predicament. What shall we drink? And then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord miraculously made those waters pure and able to be, to be, to, to be able for them to be able to drink them. And he said he tested them there. God tested them at the waters of Marah. And the, God, te- we, we need to come to grips with the fact that God hasn't necessarily destined us believers to just have a life free of conflict or trial or testing. In fact, God tests us. It says in James chapter 1, consider it all joy. Now, not, we shouldn't just resist it and complain about it. We should consider it all joy, James write, writes, when you encounter various trials, knowing that testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And you think, that, I mean, this goes on all throughout Scripture, where where there's a, a great time of success like they had, and then there's a test that God puts in our way. Are you going to still trust me? You see this in the life of, I mean, there's so many examples, but just pick one, Bill, the example of Abram, when God tests Abram by telling him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. I mean, what harder test for a human being could there really be than that? His only son. Go sacrifice your son. Now, this this is just crazy even thinking about it. But what did Abraham do? He actually obeyed God. He, he believed the Bible says that God was, okay, well, this is my promised son. You're going to bring a multitudes of generations, multitudes of people from him. Well, then I guess God is just going to have to raise him from the dead. That's what kind of faith he had. Mm-hmm. And so that faith he tested Abraham. Abraham passed the test. Abraham grew closer to God as a result of that. And that's what that's what God's design is for us as well. He wants us to be closer to him. He wants to deepen our faith in him. He wants us to be more mature, more complete, 
stronger, more refined, more pure. And I, and this, there's a, I think there's a good little sports example you, you, you do here. You were a tennis player as well, Bill. And, you know, you can sit and watch uh, YouTube videos all day on tennis matches and how to play the game. And you can go buy all the latest equipment and so forth. And, you know, you can do all this and you can actually go out and practice and so forth and hit tennis balls down at the local court and so forth. But until you face competition, until you face the test of competition, you're really not going to improve very much just reading about or hitting a few balls with your friends. It's the competition. It's the testing where you find out your weaknesses and how you respond to that testing that impels you to improve. And the good news, when God tests us, the Bible says he never allows us to be tested beyond what we are able. So we, we can know that the testing is for our good and his glory, and it'll never be on what we're able to handle at that particular time. So embrace the test, embrace the journey, because you're going to end up being closer to God if you respond in faith to him. When it comes to competitive tennis, you're the only guy I know that took on the backboard and won. Mm. <laughs> Not really, but uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of time on that backboard, that I, hitting net as a child. I know you did. All right, here's a question that really has something to do with really our human nature David, why do we uh, are so anxious to choose security over liberty? Yeah, th- this is this is one that's a difficult one. You know, you read in Exodus 16, um, just 45 days. Now we've gone from three days. Now 45 days later, they have a similar incident. They're, they set out and they're they're camping in a new place. Uh, 45 days after the departure from the second month, 15th day of the second month after the departure from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation. Now, this is not just a few people. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel, again, here's the word, grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Mm. I mean, wow, really? (laughs) I mean, really, not too long ago, they were in terrible slavery in Egypt. They were crying out. They were in in anguish. Who's going to save us? We we are oppressed. Now they prefer that because they're hungry. I mean, this kind of reminded me when I read this bill of that, that little saying back in the time when there was the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, where you had some who would kind of sympathize, like, we shouldn't get into this Cold War. It's better to be red than dead. Remember that one? Better to be red than dead. And the idea there is that our sinful nature, we'd rather have security. In other words, someone, someone or something that we can see, that we can touch, and we can taste. We'd rather be securely living rather than the unknown of having liberty or, or trusting or having faith in God. That, that's what it always comes down to. And that's what the people said. Well, we'd rather have the security, even though we're enslaved, at least we had food on the table rather than the liberty, the, the, not only the physical liberty from Egypt they were getting, now they're going to the promised land, but also the spiritual liberty they were going to be able to have as well. And so unfortunately, I think in our human fallen natures, we often choose security over liberty, and that's always a bad choice from a spiritual standpoint, but it's even a bad choice from a political or geopolitical standpoint as well, too. I mean, our country's been blessed so much because of the individual liberties that the wisdom of our founders saw fit to put in our founding documents. Mm-hmm. So, David, how does God uh, respond to the, to their grumbling? 
Well, you, you would think he'd pound them on the head. But you would think. He, he doesn't. I mean, literally in the next verse, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And so I won't read the whole thing, but uh, Moses identifies here, by the way, I didn't read the verse, but properly identifies who the people are grumbling against. They're really not grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against God. Like, you know, God brought us out of Egypt. Now he's put us in this terrible predicament where we're hungry and water and all this. Our needs aren't being met. And this is really who we sin against when we complain. It's like, God should have changed my circumstances. How did I get in this circumstance? And we, we all understand people go through very difficult things in life and we with, wish our circumstances were different. But when we understand that God is sovereign and nothing, he causes or allows everything that happens to happen, and we don't necessarily know why all the time, but we're called still to trust and have faith. And that is the hard part. And that's what the people should have been doing. They should have been like we should be doing. We should be, when we are in a difficult situation and we don't feel like our needs are getting met, we should have prayed to God and we should be trusting him to provide because that's exactly what he did. He started providing quail for them to eat. Mm -hmm. And then there's something called manna, this bread that would just appear on the ground every morning. And he did that for 40 years. And so you talk about faithless nation of Israel right. compared to the faithful God who continued to feed them. How did they disobey even after God provided like this? Well, they, they were told to just go out in the morning and gather enough manna in the morning for the day or enough quail for the day and, and gather double the amount on Saturday so they, they wouldn't go out to gather on Sunday. And again, there was miraculous things going on here that the manna would only last a day. The next, the, the, by the next morning, it would, if you tried to eat the old manna from the day before, it would have worms and it would be rotting. It would become foul, it says. Uh, same thing, you know, for the meat as well. And then, but then people weren't honoring this. They would try to go out and they try to keep it again, security over Liberty. Mm -hmm. We want to just, let's, let's store some. Or then on Saturday, instead of just gathering double for Saturday, they go out on Sunday to try to gather. It wasn't there. And so it, it's like the uh, incorrigible child where you say, do this. And they just do the opposite, you know, take one cookie and they take three. And there's, there's just no fear of authority and so forth. And that's exactly what's going on here. God is specifically telling them through Moses what to do. And what are they doing? They're doing the exact opposite. They're doing exactly what they want to do. They're self-serving rather than God-serving. And so it's like their flesh needs to be overcome. And, and fortunately for the believer, God's provided a way that we can overcome our, our fallenness. And it's through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, which God gives to us at the moment of salvation. He's the enabler that helps us overcome, so we're not self-serving, but rather God-serving instead. David, I've got a couple of more questions about manna, but I think I'm going to hold on until we meet again in a couple of weeks. We'll continue this discussion. Thank you so much for uh, your work on, on Exodus. It's a fa fantastic study. Thank you, Bill. There's yeah. so much here from an old story that uh, so much for us to apply today. Agree. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Blessings to you and your family. You too, Bill. Thank you. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to the thechristianworldview.org. You can always go there to learn more about David and his radio show and his podcast and his book and his books, plural, and everything that is right there at thechristianworldview.org. We'll take a short break. When we come back, my guest is John Somerville. Not only has he written an incredible... It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. 
So after a busy winter fundraiser, and it was spectacular, if you're just joining, thank you so much for supporting Faith Radio. Once again, we're overwhelmed with your generosity, and now I want to get my our hearts and minds refocused on uh, the reason for the season, which is the birth of Jesus, of course, and sometimes in the midst of all the busyness, it's sometimes hard to focus, and to do that, I think well, what we need to do is just talk about it more. So um, my guest uh, is John and Kathy Somerville, they're both here in studio with me. And John's written a book called Making Room for Christmas, 10 Original Christmas Stories. And these are really lovely stories. And I've known John for year and Kathy for years. And this uh, book comes at an interesting time because uh, if you want to go and read a collection of really great stories that John wrote, you will find it in this book and you will be blessed. It's one of those books you just sort of have out on the coffee table. You bring it out with all your other Christmas decorations, and then people go, what's that? You can tell them all about it. So John is uh, not only an author, but he is now the brand-new vice president for finance and operations and the CFO right here at the University of Northwestern. That's a very cool deal. Welcome, John. It's great to be here. Yeah. Okay. You've got a colorful little career in you. I mean, you started off working for General Mills. Right. And you did overseas assignments. You were in Switzerland for a while. Tough gig. Right? Right. Our oldest daughter was born there. She's our Swiss souvenir. (laughs) (laughs) And you also planted a church, city church in Minneapolis. And uh, you were there for how many years? 16. That's, yeah. And then all of a sudden you decided to take this job as CFO of uh, University of Northwestern. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's been quite a journey, but really what I'm doing is putting together all the halves of my life. Right. The, the first half, the executive leadership experience that I had at General Mills, uh, then the ministry experience, and uh, now I'm doing an executive leadership role here in a ministry organization with Northwestern Media, University of Northwestern. So I'm just delighted that uh, Kathy and I had a sense uh, prompting a couple of years ago to begin thinking about what might be next. Um, we had a sense that God had one more thing for me to do. Nice. And uh, in just a remarkable series of uh, events, um, ended up here. Yeah. Now, before we talk about uh, making room for Christmas, I do want to have you encourage others who might be in a transitional period. Maybe they're looking, thinking, what does God have next for me? When you were in that time and you were contemplating, praying, what was going through your head? Well, I think that... um, you know, part of it is just this sense of a little bit of restlessness, okay. um, a sense that it was time for City Church to have a new leader and for me to do something different. Um, and there were a few experiences, a, a book I read, which isn't a great book, but it sort of got me to begin thinking, um, conversations with friends, um, and then uh, just beginning to, to discern, trying to, to talk mm-hmm. with people who are mentors and friends and yeah. others and saying, yeah, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? Um, I think finding God's will is not just one thing. It's a, a lot of things that combine. Um, and so we had a sense that there was something new. So we actually put a stake in the ground in March. Um, I let the church know that I'd be retiring from pastoral ministry with the intention of pursuing the next career chapter. We uh, are, celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary in early March, um, March 2nd. And we did it COVID style. We did takeout in our dining room. Um, And uh, in the middle of dinner, Kathy said, you know, we've done this twice before. And I said, done what? And she said, well, uh, when you left General Mills to go to work at Wooddale Church, 
Um, and when you left Wooddale to start City Church, which Wooddale uh, is a Wooddale daughter church, she said each time God took care of us and it led to a season of fruitfulness. Why would we not expect no. this now? That was about a week before I let the board know that that's what I intended to do. And uh, and then God has provided uh, that's really remarkably. That's some impressive wisdom. And I'm looking your direction right now, Kathy. That's really Really amazing. I mean, let's just say this is kind of a nice job, too. You're CFO of University of Northwestern. I assume yeah. you're making more money than me. <laughs> I, well, I don't know, but it's about the money, Bill. <laughs> Triple espresso was probably... That's true. That was pretty pretty productive. <laughs> pretty good uh, Pretty gig. lucrative, yeah. yeah. But um, we, I know one of the things you did at City Church was uh, because there was always a big influx of visitors around uh, Christmas time, you always did something which I thought was very creative and very novel, and you told mm-hmm. stories. Yeah, uh, you know, I think it was the th- the second year we were a church. I did the standard Christmas sermon, the Christmas Eve sermon yes. that uh, that pastors do with all the kids in the service, and it was just a cha- chaos. And I just thought, no one's listening. <laughs> not, this might finely crafted, well, you know, edited sermon is just not going striking home. And so the next year I read a story from another book, um, and that seemed to work. And I got this idea that maybe I should try to write a story. So I wrote a Christmas story, I think year three or four of the church, and it went well. And uh, the next year somebody said, well, what's your story for this year? And it just kind of snowballed from there. Uh, When we got 10 stories, uh, my wife and daughters in 2018 said, you know, you really need to get these in a book. So, So that's what we did. There are three more stories that are not in the book, but uh, it had 13 stories, 13 years in a row, and it became a tradition, and uh, it was a great creative outlet for me. So <laughs> well, it's interesting that someone from church said, so what's going to be your story this year? I mean, yeah. they could have said, you're not doing that one of those stories again, <laughs> are you? <laughs> yeah. So encouraging, and you did that, and you put them all in a book, and they're absolutely delightful, and I... I'm going to ask you to talk about one of them today. Sure. Or, or maybe there's, you, you talked about three that aren't in the book. Um, so you're holding on on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it takes a few resources to get a book together. Of course. So I'm, of course. Know, but, um, yeah, one of, one of my favorites is uh, Ivy. Yeah. Um, you know, this story has a backstory, and that is that uh, the year that I wrote that, our, our daughters were, I think one of them was in middle school and the other one was in grade school, and the youngest one, uh, the oldest one started, had to get on the bus at 7.15, and the youngest one uh, got on the bus at 9 o'clock. And Kathy was uh, teaching at a preschool. She had to be out the door at 8 or 8.15. And so we had this hour gap. And our, our youngest daughter was, uh, we called her Vegas, the child that never sleeps. Um, she was up early and up late. And <laughs> so we had to fill time. And uh, the way we filled it that year was reading. Um, uh, you know, she'd already eaten breakfast. She already, everything was ready. And so we'd read. And we read a series of fairy tales. Mm-hmm. Um and it was in the midst of that that I thought, you know, what if I tried to write a fairy tale? Um, and so that's what I did is, is made up this story about this little girl named Ivy and her dad, who's a woodcutter, and mm-hmm. they're just poor as you can be. Um, and they have this series of visitors at Christmas time, and they don't have much. And, uh, you know, it's just a story that sort of snowballed from there. But it was inspired by all these fairy tales that the two of us, that Hannah and I had been reading. Yeah, I think that's why it captured my imagination, too, because I, I just love the descriptive language. And I it does take you through a fairy tale. And I'd love for you to share a little bit more with the listeners of it. Sure. You know, uh, the part of part of the deal is Ivy and, and Ivy's lost her mom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's just a real gap in their lives. Um, and her father has one... Uh, he, he's a woodcarver, um, woodcutter, woodcarver, and he has made this uh, creche, um, all the, the characters from the Christmas story. 
Um, and there's apparently great skill in what he does, and particularly the Mary in the crash um, is a likeness of her mother. So it's a very precious thing to her. Mm. Um, and so that's that's a little bit of the background. Um, you know, the the story uh, has these these visitors show up, and they have no resources. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 don't have much to give them, and yet they give the things that they have. Um, and uh, that includes food. And then there's the cloak that her mother had. She actually gives to someone who, who shows up. Um, and then she gives the animals or the, the characters from the crash, with the exception of the Mary, uh, which she keeps, to um, a, a, a minister, a, a priest who comes through. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a way of, of blessing them. Um, and, you know, it really is a story about generosity. It um, is. About giving out of... The, not the abundance, but out of even the lack, um, and a story that that changes, you know, Ivy's perception about, in some ways, about God's generosity that comes even in the midst of, of need and want. Um, so it's a way of living out the the spirit of Christmas um, uh, in that in that story. And Ivy is strategizing on how to serve more and do more and give more, and they have nothing. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> they literally have nothing, and yeah. they're trying to save up some special food for Christmas, and and that they're thinking even if the people wanted to stay in this little one-room cottage, they'd figure out a way to make it happen. Right, right. Yeah, and then the end of the story really has the idea of God's abundant blessing because uh, slowly they, they they find first that uh, after all these visitors have left, there's this bag of gold, um, you know, which is, is just a, you know, on a an amazing gift that they received and food shows up. And then the next spring someone comes and uh, from the monastery brings a cow uh, that can be a productive asset, a resource for them. So, you know, it's uh, their generosity is then um, you know, they're blessed by God because of, of it. And Ivy grows up to be a beautiful young woman as all fairy tales. And you're right. And, right. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, but she's known mostly for her kindness um, mm-hmm. it, it, more than so than her beauty. So, um, you know, it's just a fun story to write. Um, and, uh, you know, our, our, da- our daughter, Hannah, who was the one that, that sort of in part inspired the story, when she was young, she loved helping me name the characters okay. um, in these stories. And uh, she would, I would write the story and she'd come home and she'd say, no, that's, that, that name isn't right. And, you know, she'd make suggestions. So I, I think she probably had some influence in giving Ivy her name. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, beautifully written, and uh, I I enjoy it like many of the other stories in the book. Uh, John Somerville is my guest. He's written a book called Making Room for Christmas, and it really started as a, a, an experiment one year as a, a senior pastor at his church, and then the everyone else said, well, what are you doing this year? And he started telling these stories in the Christmas Eve service, and they always tied into a, a beautiful message of uh, the gospel, and they they all... Uh, it's, you know, you always weave it in in some capacity, every story. Right. Just like a pastor would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you um, can get a hold of this book at johnsomerville.com, and it's S-O-M-M-E-R-V-I-L-L-E. So, yeah, just you do need to add the middle initial M, so johnmsomerville.com, yeah. and uh, they are for sale, and we'd love to, for as many people put these in the hands of as many people as possible. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, uh, you talk about these three stories that aren't in the book, and I don't know those stories, so I'm going to at least want at least one of them, if not two. So we'll take a short break and be right back.
are not doing any more winter fundraising. That ended at noon today or 1 o'clock. But, boy, did we have an incredible uh, response. Thank you very much for your support and your calls and your gifts. Of course, you can always still go to MyFaithRadio.com. If you have not gotten around to it, thank you for considering it, and thank you for uh, for acting on what God led you to do. That's uh, awfully amazing, and we uh, very much appreciate you, and thank you, and uh, we'll be saying thank you for many more days to come. So uh, John Somerville is my guest. He's written a book called Making Room for Christmas, 10 Original Christmas Stories, and I've read all 10 of them, and uh, John was kind of teasing me that there's a couple that aren't in the book, so that got my interest, and so, John, maybe we can talk about one that is not in the book. Sure. Um, last year's story was inspired by, uh, we took a trip um, after Christmas one year, I think between Christmas and New Year's, to Big Sky in Montana nice. uh, for skiing. Friends have a place there and uh, were gracious enough to let us use it. And um, while we were there, you know, we just, you know, we saw the mountain. And it, uh, anyway, I began to think about what would happen um, if there were some kind of accident. Um, and so the story's built around uh, a, a father um, and a daughter. Maybe there's a th- common theme here with, with I- the story of Ivy, but they've lost their mother. Um, and uh, she's about 15 years old, and um, her dad is part of the mountain rescue group in Big Sky. And um, But a, a cousin of hers gets um, out of, goes out, skis out of bounds and gets in trouble, um, and somebody has to go get him. And her father has broken his ankle, and so this girl has to um, to to get up there, to get up the mountain, um, climb, and do some technical climbing to get to him to be able to to uh, um, um, pull him out of where he is in order to get the, the mountain rescue folks to get him. So the story is a, a big uh, play around um, uh, her her uh, the fear that she has that she can't do this. Um, you know, she's done it in warm weather, but not in cold weather. Mm. Um, and she's guided through this. They have her on a radio and she's guided through this, um, by her father who tells her what to do as she makes her way along. Um, so it's quite a story and it's one that in the way I tell the story gets national attention because, um, of this rescue by this 15 year old girl who, um, you know, the whole place is socked in by a storm and no one can get there except her. Um, so uh, I, I love those stories. <laughs> There's just one person that can do it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Reminds me of the one person that can forgive us of our sin. Yes. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. And what a gift we have at Christmas time. So um, are you writing a story this year to tell you know, to the family or are you kind of putting the pen down because you're not a senior pastor anymore? Well, I have been told by uh, my family that I I need to deliver. Yeah, um, I figured. So, uh, you know, I, I think I, I'm going to be off from the 22nd until just before New Year's. So you got I, work I to do then. I've got work to do on the 22nd, 23rd <laughs> uh, to write a story. So I don't yet have the idea. We were actually bouncing uh, ideas off uh, or off each other the other night at dinner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need a, I need a, a really good, good hook. But uh, once I get that, I'm going to try to write. Yeah, that's probably the key is just that, that little kernel of an idea. And then it explodes in your head, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. And I, I'm, I had a guest on named Ace Collins. He wrote about the traditions of Christmas. And when you hear about the, the true origins of the Christmas traditions that we celebrate, it's so powerful uh, to hear stories told well. Yeah. And stories are, are, are so strong and they're uh, so easy to repeat, uh, especially when you're talking about sharing your faith with other people. Right. Well, and I think that's what these stories did for us um, in the church. I think that uh, they gave families and kids something they could all connect with. And um, again, told well, they 
they uh, they really do help reinforce the Christmas story. Mm-hmm. And John has been uh, recently named as Vice President for Finance and Operations. He's the CFO here at the University of Northwestern, which is a mighty big job, and you are uh, beautifully equipped to do it. And God has called you t- to be here, so we're very grateful for that. But I'm, I'm still, during the break, we were talking about the, the speed of the transition from when you announced that you were retiring, and then the next day you get a call regarding right. this possibility. And I, I think that's a real encouragement to everyone who might be in a transitional phase of their life, or maybe they're waiting for their next opportunity. Um, there's nothing inconsequential in God's economy, is there? No, there's not. And, you know, we prayed for, uh, as, as we wrote a little list of prayer requests when we were in this transition, and just prayed for clear and unmistakable guidance, and oh my did God guide? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a beautiful prayer for clear and unmistakable guidance. It's a scary prayer, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, because what if God says, yeah, John and Kathy, you're on your way to Nigeria. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that would be God's will. So you'd go. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think I, I, in, in the middle of that process, I was talking, networking with people and um, someone said to me that his prayer was wherever, whenever, whatever. Right. And, and I think that we need to have that kind of um, open-handedness um, and uh, surrender, um, asking God what that next thing might be for us. Um, and uh, and sometimes it's a very humble thing. Sometimes it's a, a bigger thing. Um, but, uh, you know, when we surrender who we are and what we are and our past experiences and skills and gifts to God, um, He uses those. Yeah, I see Abraham responding with, here I am, Lord. And you're thinking that there was an immediate response. And, there, there, you know, there's people that are spending this Christmas uh, possibly not as connected with their families as they'd like to be. Uh, right. I know that COVID has made a big difference in the gatherings and there's made a big difference in people's ability to uh, uh, travel. So the, the, the traditions have been interrupted. So I'm always reminded because I'm a very nostalgic person, that when you tell stories and share stories like you have in your book, um, it's so heartwarming wherever you are, even if you're not with family or the people that you really want to be with. Is, stories are a wonderful way of of feeling connected. Well, and I think they also, you mentioned nostalgia. I, I think that um, going back to familiar stories um, can be a really great way of just recalling past moments in our lives when um, God has done something, and we need to tell stories. Um, this is why I think the, the people of Israel kept looking back to their experience in, in leaving Egypt. Um, it was a reminder of God's faithfulness, even if it didn't feel like it right then. Maybe they were in a difficult place. Uh, just re, you know, reading those stories of God's faithfulness in the past inspired them to be um, patient in the moment. Mm-hmm. John, are you a journaler? Um, yeah, I am. You raised your eyebrows a little bit when you said that. <laughs> well, I think I've become more one okay. in the last few years, especially in, in, as we began to think about this transition a couple of years ago. Again, it was it was nebulous. We didn't know exactly how it would end. Um, really did, did journal quite a bit. Um, read through the Psalms twice, um, and the first time through just wrote a lot of reflections. The Psalms are, you know, they, they, they speak from the the emotional side of who we are um and uh it was it was so enriching and a, a different kind of experience than the more cognitive sort of um propositional romans or You're right. uh philippians or whatever uh, it was it was so i i did a lot of journaling i was just trying to dig down a little bit do you do you journal and then take 
the notes and things, reflections you've made in your journal, and then move that into uh, stories? Um, you know, What's I th- the method or the process? Yeah, I don't know that there's any one method. Okay. I mean, some of the stories are inspired by experiences. Um, some of the stories are... The, uh, one of the stories that I wrote after the book um, is a story about two brothers who are uh, in conflict, have been for many, many years, um, and they, they, they hate each other. Mm. Um, and that was inspired by reading some texts about how, how we need to be reconciled to one another. Um, and I began to think about, you know, what would it look like in a story if that happened? And these two brothers are farmers and they've, they've split the land and they, you know, they're, they, you know, one has sort of, uh, cheated the other out of, uh, you know, he took the best piece of land and the other one didn't get quite as good a piece. And, um, and there's a boy, a son, um, who, two sons, excuse me, who, you know, they really want to see the family reconciled. And, and, and that's kind of the way the story unfolds. Yeah, that sounds fantastic because there's a lot of families that are fragmented that, um, makes Christmas and traditions and holiday gatherings very stressful. Yeah. So... John Somerville has written a book called Making Room for Christmas. How many years has this been out? Um, three? I think we published it three years. Yeah, three, three years, years ago, ago. Yeah, because I've got a signed copy here. Did you know that? <laughs> uh, I see it. Yeah, it's, I, <laughs> I keep it close. I, I Thank keep you. It, I keep it nearby. And as we get into the busy of the season, let's always be mindful of why we are celebrating Christmas. And Making Room for Christmas is really just a, it's a collection of stories that John has written, and each one kind of brings to life uh, why Christmas is so incredibly special. So you can share these stories and they will inspire you to share them with others. And maybe you'll do that over a nice big steaming cup of cocoa because uh, that's a great way to have some fellowship and to share your faith with others and their great traditions. So um, congratulations again on being here at the, as North University of Northwestern as the new CFO. We're very excited to have you here. Well, I am really thrilled. Wonderful people and a great mission, and I'm excited to to uh, do what I can to contribute. Yeah, I know. Are you official as of now? I, I started November 8th. Oh, fantastic. So this is week five. I didn't get the memo. You didn't? I did not, which I don't know how I didn't get the memo. Well, you must not read your email. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was very excited to hear uh, about that. Very, very fun. So what are your plans for Christmas? Well, I think our uh, our oldest daughter um, got married in, during COVID, and uh, uh, right at the beginning of COVID, so her wedding went from 225 to six in nice. four days or five days. Um, so uh, this is the year for them to be with his family. Okay. Um, so we won't be with them until the 27th. We're we're actually going to go down. My parents are still living; they're 92 and 91, and we're going to go down to. Uh, where they live for a couple of days, um, and then we'll come back and be together, uh, all of us as a family. And what so, daughter got married? The oldest. Her name is Amy. Amy, yeah. So now, would Amy say that she, w- if she had to do it over, she'd do it the way it happened? You know, six people. It was it was interesting the week that this was all going down because uh, she flew home on March fifteenth, mm-hmm. two thousand twenty. On 2000, wow. you know, the next day was the stay-at-home order, um, <laughs> and the venue that uh, they were planning to use called and said, uh, we can't do it because the governor shut us down. On Tuesday, they had a, um, a restaurant in downtown Minneapolis that said, yeah, we can, we can do it. On Wednesday, they called and said they couldn't, and they had a VRBO uh, organized. And so finally, on thir- that, that fell through on Thursday, so she said, Dad, 
Um, what if we eloped and did the wedding in our living room um, and her, her husband or fiance at that time, Seth's parents, drove here from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So it was Kathy and I and his parents and the two of them. And as my daughter said, uh, it's handy to have a pastor in the family. <laughs> and so, it is, isn't it? So, you know, I think the, the only regret is that their siblings couldn't be there. Yeah. Um, our son-in-law's uh, older brother is a doctor. His sister's a nurse. And um, uh, um, her, our daughter Amy, or her younger sister Hannah, mm-hmm. um, was not able to be there either. So that's the only regret. Yeah. And she didn't wear her wedding dress. She okay. wore another dress. It was white and um, looked great. But uh, yeah. but they really have come to terms with the idea. At, at the middle of the week, I said to her, you know, you're going to have a story. And she burst into tears and said, I don't want a story. Yeah. And um, But now they look back and think, you know, it was memorable and um, and uh, it's it has been good. Yeah. So. Well, thank you very much for coming in. And congratulations. Uh-huh. And always nice to look back at your book. And read the stories, Making Room for Christmas, 10 original Christmas stories, John M. Somerville. We'll take a short break. Break When we come back, we're going to continue our Old Testament series. Dr. Peter Kapster and I are going to be joined by none other than Carmen LaBerge. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.